Hello, I'm Anna Marie Slot, Global ESG and Sustainability Partner at Ashurst. And thank you for joining me for another one of our 30 for Net Zero 30 podcasts, where I've been speaking with champions across the globe around real actions to take now to achieve 2030 goals. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Phil Drew, partner in Brunswick's global business and society team and co-lead of the firm's climate practice. Phil advises the world's largest asset managers, banks, corporates, philanthropics, and climate investor networks. Thank you so much, Phil, for joining us today. Um, perhaps we could start with a little bit of your background about yourself, the work you're doing. I understand uh, you're pr pretty busy last year um, with, a, uh, with a global initiative, so maybe you could fill us in. Fantastic, and it's an absolute pleasure to be part of this conversation. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, yeah, a bit, a bit of background, a bit more background on where climate fits within within my world and the world worlds that we advise. Uh, in addition to the beautiful description you just gave, I, I've also been continues to be a, a special advisor to the UN high level climate champions for COP26 and moving also into COP27. So very much at the heart of where climate change and the climate corporate climate agenda is intersecting with the real economy. But just to back up a bit, uh, in, in terms of how um, we've been interacting with and encountering climate change. As a firm, Brunswick advises large, complex companies on their most critical issues and, and also their most critical stakeholders across three interconnected worlds of finance, policy and society. And really, the story of climate change becoming a, a long-term critical issue is the story of those three stakeholder worlds interacting. There's not a company in any sector or any region of the world whose business model is not going to be profoundly affected by these changing realities. And that has everything to do with the nature of climate change. It's a critical issues multiplier that's reshaping the demands of business across those three worlds. So with that, climate change has really become intrinsic to the future prospects, the future growth story of, of any business and how to play a successful role in the transition to a zero carbon economy and to do that credibly has also obviously become a really critical issue for business. And we're certainly seeing that among the uh, clients, the companies that we work with. So we work with companies in some of the most complex, carbon intensive, and therefore consequential sectors to decarbonize, whether that's energy, transport, construction, food, agriculture, finance. And also, as you touched on in your intro, we advise many of the key multilateral efforts to really harness the scale, the dynamism, the resources, the skills of the private sector, whether that's the UN race to zero, which is bringing together the efforts across the real economy, and also the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which I played a role in in helping to launch. That's very much a, an effort spearheaded by Nigel Topping, but also Mark Carney, and now Mary Shapiro and Mike Bloomberg. So given the criticality, the complexity of that landscape, you asked about, I guess, what it is that we're focusing on. And companies, businesses that we're working with are really looking for support in three or four areas. One is given uh, the fast evolving nature of stakeholder expectations to help them make sense of them, both where they are today, but also where they're he heading next. And then secondly, really to help them to define a journey for their business that will be recognized as credible, distinctive, and, and critically also robust. And then finally, to find ways and develop ways of contributing to the sector and economy-wide progress towards net zero. So taking action through the core of their business, but also beyond their business 
in partnership with others and being an advocate for the kind of enabling conditions that will enable them to move faster. Interesting. And I, I think you, you've, uh, you know, you've identified it in some ways already, but uh, would be interested to hear, you know, are you seeing a shift there? Is, you know, are the conversations you're having today different than you had 18 months ago, 24 months ago around, around these questions? Yeah, I, I think we've seen a really significant shift uh, over the last 18 months. Uh, maybe not despite, but actually because of the pandemic, probably in six key areas. And I think Glasgow in many ways helped to crystallize um, some of those shifts. So just to take some of them in turn, I think the one thing that uh, Glasgow has really helped to do is reset the political sat-nav on the science. So creating consensus on the need to hold temperature at 1.5, that's a really massive and significant upgrade from uh, the well below two uh, degrees ceiling of, of intent, obviously announced five, six years ago at Paris, in order to avoid the most catastrophic consequences of climate. And related to that, we've seen net zero move from a niche to the organising principle of the global economy, now covering an astonishing 90% of emissions. Clearly, obviously, we're far from where we need to be on that. But what we've now got from Glasgow is uh, the commitment to return in a few months time, eight months time, through an annual ratchet to really help to close the gap between where we are, the trajectory we're on, and where we need to be. So the first one is really, uh, I guess, a global consensus now, a political consensus that's caught up finally with the scientific consensus on holding temperatures to 1.5, and that'd be very significant, is very significant for businesses. I think the second thing that we've seen alongside those, the emphasis on mitigation is the elevated urgency of climate resilience. And it's quite topical that we're perhaps touching on that today, given the IPCC is releasing a new report on adaptation to the most severe impacts of climate change, which we're seeing accelerating. And that's really important, that focus on resilience and adaptation, because in many ways, resilience and adaptation has been the forgotten half of the climate equation. And that's, of course, obviously been a, a source of geopolitical tension for the global south, who, who are already reckoning with the realities of climate change right now. So I think one of the things that we've seen over the last 18 months, but particularly around Glasgow, is the addressing of that imbalance, a real big focus on resilience. I mentioned in, in, in the background that I've been working on the race to zero, uh, the effort to join up. Uh, efforts across investors, across businesses, regions and cities. But alongside the race to zero, uh, the high level champions uh, under the auspices of the UN also launched the race to resilience, which is a sibling of that. And that is bringing together now two and a half thousand initiatives focused on building climate resilience in 100 uh, countries. So the resilience agenda is really, really motoring. And we're going to see, I think, further, um, a, a further awareness and further action on that. Uh, this year. Related to, to resilience, I think we've seen a reframing of it from being a, a kind of obligation, a, a, a kind of inescapable imperative to actually something the private sector can contribute to. So very interested to see at the end of last year, I think Bank of America coming out with um, some statistics predicting that the adaptation market could double to about $2 trillion a year within the next five years. So capital markets are already both seeing the imperative that they need to navigate resilience, but also the economic opportunity to really invest in it. The, the third is, it has to be about finance and the scale of capital that's required for the transition that we're now starting to see beginning to form. 
and crucially a conversation that did evolve, has evolved over the last 18 months, is a broadening out beyond the billions that are necessary in public finance to the promised, um, to, to intended trillions of private capital that be required for net zero. And, and, and here, I think the momentum has been massively significant. So if we think about 18 months ago, when the UK assumed the presidency with Italy, there was just about 5 trillion of, of capital committed to align with net zero and 1.5 degrees. Now we're seeing the entire waterfront of finance committed to that task. About 500 institutions, over 130 uh, trillion in capital. So about a 25% 25-fold increase. And they're motivated by growing evidence of climate risk, but not only climate risk as investment risk, but also that the shift to a net zero economy is a historic investment opportunity. I think BlackRock came out with um, some research at the end of last year, anticipating that it could actually add 25% um, cumulative GDP growth versus one in which uh, we take no action. And so in practice, the role of finance is not just about pledges, but also about driving real change. So what we've seen through the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero is the expectation um, and the commitment by those um, signed up to it to set science-based targets covering all of their finance emissions, publishing detailed sector-specific emission reduction plans within 18 months of joining and halving their fair share of emissions by 2030. So that's a really significant signal to, to governments, but also to the real economy. And looking ahead, I think we can expect an even deeper focus, more concerted focus on implementation, mobilization of capital, particularly to developing countries and advocacy. But the fourth big shift is, I think, has really added impetus to corporate net zero commitments. So we saw an aggregate, the number of companies setting net zero commitments tripling during the pandemic and actually fastest in the toughest sectors to debate and, and uh, to, to abate. And that's really been driven by a convergence between policy, between finance, industry and supply chains. And Glasgow really deepened that, particularly with the launch of the Glasgow Breakthrough Agenda, which is bringing together um, world leaders, across, including across the US, India, EU, China, to really accelerate innovation, green technology in five sectors that are really critical to that, to halving emissions, electrical road transport, clean power, green hydrogen, green steel, and sustainable agriculture. So it's that convergence between those stakeholders whose participation is absolutely vital that I think we've really seen. But I think that the inevitable corollary, fifth point, to that mainstreaming of net zero commitment is, I guess, a concern to distinguish the quality and credibility of targets and their implementation. I think uh, we can expect Certainly, the companies we're working with, uh, I expect scrutiny by all stakeholders to intensify. I think about 5% of net zero targets are on track, one report um, earlier this year indicated. And it's not just NGOs, but also rating agencies and investors that are paying ever more close attention to the quality of implementation. That's going to be a really big, significant theme that we saw develop over the course of last year and is really going to deepen this year. And it's not just carbon, final point. I think we've seen over the last 18 months a real um, real progress, a real connection between climate and the nature agenda. I think Glasgow very much helped to establish that there can be no net zero for companies or indeed for the wider world without halting and reversing nature loss. Mathematically impossible, in fact. 
for companies with land-based emissions to deliver on their net zero targets. So we saw a huge amount of attention given to that at Glasgow with 100 governments, companies, investors, um, and also their supply chains. I think, especially as we look ahead to COP15 on biodiversity, which has obviously been rescheduled, but the intent very much to take place during this year, to be a, a real sort of um, crystallization of that dual imperative climate and nature and what that means for business investors as well as um, global efforts to accelerate to a, a more sustainable, more resilient economy. No, all fair points and, and a really good overview of kind of what's happened from the, from the big picture. Um, I think, Phil, that that was really helpful in, you know, sharing how um, how all of these aspects of kind of climate change are sort of getting more granular and at the same time, you know, getting more complex, just in case you didn't think it was complex at the beginning. Um, but really kind of bringing in lots of different things. I think given all of these movements right and left and, and the scale of it, and particularly your point about adaptation, which I think people have a hard time getting their heads around, um, as well as the commercial connectivity between biodiversity and, and climate change, like what does that mean for business? I think all those points are very hard for people to, to kind of think through. Um, is, there, is there maybe one specific action or one thing that you think would really kind of change the dial on this and, and really enable people to meet those promises that came out of Glasgow, which got quieter and quieter, I think. Um, I think people kind of forgot the, the, the volume of pledges that, that were made at Glasgow, or at least it's, it's getting dim in the, in the rear view mirror there. I think it's a great question. Is there a game-changing action? I, mean, I, I think the most significant lever of action is probably action consistent with commitment. So if I think about um, some of the efforts by uh, the UN Race to Zero, there are roughly about 30 sectors in the global economy. And as we head into Glasgow at COP26 and, and head out of it, obviously, into 2022, we reach tipping points in terms of the scale of net zero commitment that's necessary to create exponential change in about half of those sectors. So the stakeholder agenda, I think, in 2022 is really going to focus on the shift from net zero commitment to transition plans that can drive net zero implementation. So I think the one action is around the quality, high integrity, deliverable transition plans that are consistent with the public commitments and targets made. And, and, and I think crucially, the, the, there's increasing convergence around what those plans should look like, covering all scopes, combining near and long-term goals, capturing the opportunity as well as navigating the threats of the climate transition, driving progress across value chains and providing transparency on progress, as well as advocating for the progressive enabling policies to make those plans deliverable. Mm -hmm. And those transition plans, I think, is something that civil society wants in order to distinguish greenwash from real net zero. And it's something that investors, lenders, credit rating agencies also want in order to determine who are going to be the winners and losers within sectors as well as between them. And so I think we're seeing increasingly that global and industry level standards, tools, multi-stakeholder coordination, it is really coming together to, to enable that, to really build a, a shared picture of what a, a credible, um, a deliverable um, and valuable transition plan will look like. So I think that as we shift into implementation, an era of implementation of accountability would be 
a bit will be a, a key game changer over the next uh, 12 to 24 months. Oh, definitely. So, so in light of that, this, what is your, can I ask you what your own commitment then is to net zero uh, in the next uh, you know, kind of 12 months or so? Do you, do you have a, do you have a personal plan? It's a great question. I, I mean, a, a big thing that I think I've been trying, trying to be very intentional about over the last um, number of years has been how through, uh, how, how through my role as a, a, an advisor on strategic communications and and corporate relations, I can really make an impact both through clients and helping them to navigate, drive and innovate, particularly those organizations who can make a systemically significant uh, impact. And also through the various multilateral initiatives that um, I'm privileged to, to, to be part of and advising on, whether that's Race for Zero or, uh, or GFANS. But on a personal level, a thing that I've been really um, focusing on over the last few Few, few months, I think, is my own uh, pension plans and how I can be really consistent with how I'm uh, shifting and allocating uh, my savings the, uh, in line with, it, with, with my convictions. So I think really trying to live um, some of those convictions, not just through uh, lifestyle changes, how we fly and what we eat, but also how we invest for the future and save for the future has been a, a big focus for our family. Interesting. So we, we, we had a podcast um, before that, you know, really focusing on the, the, the power of, of your own money and the ability of you to control that and, and send that message um, out to the wider financial system. Those have been fantastic points, uh, Phil. Maybe one, one key takeaway for the listeners today. I mean, I heard lots of great things um, coming from you, you know, this idea that we might not find the solution today, but certainly you got to put the transition plans in place today. And I think that's a that's a common theme that we're seeing and hearing uh, and giving out to people. But um, a key takeaway? The key takeaway is that we need to close the ambition. So voluntary targets, voluntary commitments, voluntary transition plans can only get us so far, but hopefully that provides a signal to policymakers, to legislators, to regulatory supervisors, supervisors to mandate and to, to standardise some of these things. We're already starting to see the early signals of that. Um, UK, for instance, is mandating transition plans, as, as you know, and we know that other jurisdictions are interested in, in that approach too, but mandating um, the shift to implementation is going to be a really crucial facet. We can only get so far with volunteerism. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Phil. It was a pleasure having you on today. Um, great work that you're doing uh, b- both across Brunswick, but also um, in, all the, in all the groups that you're working on the race to net zero um, and really getting people focused on this critical, you know, what to do now uh, to deliver tomorrow. So thanks so much. Thank you so much, Anna Marie. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure and really exciting talking to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it worthwhile. To learn more about the issues we've just covered, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. This 30 for Net Zero 30 episode is just one small part of our continuing podcast series, ESG Matters at Ashurst. Make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, you can also listen to our other episodes and leave a rating or review. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.